This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Two minutes past nine, you're on 3RRR's to Radio Marinara. My name is Dr Beach. And I'm Angeline Charles. Hi, Angeline. Hi, Dr Beach. It's a bronze-free zone this morning. It is. Uh, is that something like when the cat's away or something? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. We've got Kent on the panel. And He'll it's keep a, us on the straight and narrow. Yeah, he will. It's a pretty <laughs> chilly morning out there. It is. <laughs> what a what great we weekend. What we, well, yeah. Started off with on Friday, Whales in the Bay... I know that was amazing. Yeah, I just well, I just saw a tiny bit on the news. Where, where, were they? Were they southern rights? Were they? I haven't heard what they were without really, you know, I guess seeing any uh, clear footage. I haven't looked at the the. I've only looked at photos. Well, we have um, Neil Blake coming in. Oh, we do. Well, Neil might know. At about ten past, so Neil, yep. our Blake, our Blake keeper, our Bay keeper. <laughs> Well, I'm sure Briggy's up to speed with what's happening. He might know. But that looked fantastic, uh, frolicking round uh, off Williamstown with the, the police boat there. Amazing. It's just a beautiful thing, isn't it? It is. It's fantastic. Yeah. It does happen probably, it probably happens every year. It's just whether we, we're seeing, we were out there watching it. Yeah. Yeah. And before we go any further, we have thing, uh, Tim to thank, of course. Yes. Always a great show. It was. It was a beautiful thing. It was a bit heavy when I turned it on. I think that must have been at the Mercury Rev part. I got, I got that as well. I, see, just... I did like it though. Yeah. I just like I thought this is a, this is heavy for Tim. <laughs> <laughs> so we have Neil Blake coming in, and then we are going to talk to Dr. Denise Hardesty from CSIRO. Uh, she is a principal oceans and atmosphere scientist, working in Tasmania at Hobart, and she's going to talk us through the biggest, or well, the world's greatest pollution survey concentrated mostly on plastics so she'll be talking to us on the telephone i'm looking forward very much to to hearing all about that and the united nations sustainable development goals as well she's going to talk us through that a little bit 
Now that was last week, wasn't it? The uh, the meeting that they had. It was, yes. So we'll um, we'll get to find out all about that from from Denise. And then towards the end of the show, we got a few bits of news. I'm going to get back to fish lips. We don't talk enough about fish lips on this program. And there was a paper <laughs> I was going to talk about last week about um, wrasses who eat coral in a very special way by kissing it with their lips. So, so you're, have you're all focused on lips in your stories. So it's, well, mine's, mine's actually, I'm going to have a, a story I'd like to fit in about um, something that's called a snot bot. A snot bot? A snot bot, I know. How gorgeous. Cool. <laughs> so I'm getting this image of this robot with lots of mucus and It's sort of like that, but not quite. But it would have a lot of mucus on it, yeah, definitely. It's for collecting mucus. Yeah. Stay tuned. What's happening with the weather? It's um, going to be 15 degrees today, partly morning fog in, um, or patchy morning fog in the north and east and partly cloudy day with a slight chance of a shower. Um, in the early evening, it's going to be 15 degrees. Light winds tomorrow is going to be 16 degrees, partly cloudy, mostly sunny on Tuesday, 16 degrees. Wednesday, 60% chance of rain, a little bit of rain, just up to a couple of millimetres at the most, and it's going to be 14 degrees. And on Thursday, it's looking about the same. If you're heading out on the water, you'll be interested in the tides and at the heads, it is, well, it was high tide at 5.20am and it's going to be a low tide of 0.57 metres at 10.53. Surf report, the swell, we should have got Dr. Um, Dr. Surf on the phone, but um, maybe we can do that later. We've got onshore, moderate onshore winds um, uh, attra- uh, affecting surf conditions this morning, but should abate in the afternoon. The water temperature is 15 degrees. Are you heading out on the water today? Probably not. Uh, no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> You've programmed some music for us, haven't you? I have. We're going to go straight into the music. I oh, know you've got a bit of news, haven't you? I d- I the day on us, yeah. Well, that's right. Last um, On Monday, it was uh, Monday last, the Queen's birthday, and they have an um, honours list that comes oh, out. Queen's birthday, that's right. Yes. That's right, yep. Uh, and I just want to read a couple out that are sort of relevant to our show. Uh, the first one's for Kathleen Hassel, and Kathleen's a member of the Frankston Beach Association. She's been a member since 1983, and uh, she's also been the secretary for 12 years, pretty much described as the backbone of the association. So she's obviously done some really hard work down there, and she's made a significant contribution to the environmental value of Frankston Beach dunes, uh, using her skills to propagate... Uh, plants and she's planted over 90,000 indigenous plants since 1995. So she's done some amazing work. Sure is. Um, and was also recognised in 2013 um, by the Victorian Coastal Council for her outstanding individual achievement. So congratulations, Kathleen. She's got an Order of Australia medal, which is an OAM after her name. Uh, the second one is to is for Rosemary Burney from um, <clears throat> I won't tell you where she lives. I think sometimes they're a bit they're a bit um, over invasive when you read them. <laughs> but um, Rosemary's been awarded for her service to conservation in the environment. Uh, she's been the secretary. She is the secretary of the Friends of Summers Foreshore Incorporated, and she's been the secretary of the Summers Foreshore Committee of Management. Um, she's also received a outstanding volunteer award. Uh, from the Victorian Coastal Council in 2012 and uh, also the winner of the Local Hero Hero Award from Coast Care Australia in 2008. Another person who's done a lot of uh, volunteer work on the coast. So thank you very much, Rosemary, and congratulations. She's also got the Order of Australia Medal and OAM. 
Fantastic. Yeah. And the last one, look, someone from Queensland, David Thomas, uh, and he's a member, he's, he's uh, been honoured with a member, an AM in the General Division, and that's for his significant service to the community through philanthropic support for, um, well, he does a lot of support for different things, medical research, but also environmental conservation. Uh, and he has been the person that encouraged or their foundation encouraged the Nature Conservancy to come to Australia in 2002. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of work. They're doing work in Victoria uh, and also supported the Fight for the Reef campaign, uh, World Wildlife Fund and the Australian Marine Conservation Society. So, yeah, congratulations, congratulations everyone. Congratulations to those people doing yeah. wonderful jobs. And there are many more people out there in addition there to are. those three. I'm sure there are people out there now doing that. Yeah. And indeed, Neil Black, the person we've got coming on soon. That's right. After this track, our baykeeper. Triple R on the show. The show is Radio Marinara, and before those announcements, we heard our Nick, of course, Nick Cave. Angelina, you programmed that for us. Obviously, a, a song that you love dearly. I do. Well, you did say you didn't want to hear the ship song again, so um, I chose that one into my arms from The Boatman's Call, so there's our Indeed. marine link. There is the marine link. <laughs> I was trying to think of a marine link for uh, Release the Bats. I was going to play that. I think I might do that one yeah, day. Yeah, well, I'm sure they have. Well, mar- they bats, bats live on the more. coast down bats. at Warnable in Caves. There you go. There it is. That's right. <laughs> We're joined in the studio this morning with um, by Neil Blake, our baykeeper. Greetings, everybody. Greetings, Neil. How are you? Uh, very good. Yeah, it's great to be here again. Nice uh, Melbourne's winter day. Where you call it? Not really winter, is it? Well, it's not too bad. Well, I don't know about that. It's pretty howling. cold out there. <laughs> Now, we were talking about the whales in the bay before. I mean, let's, before we move on to the stuff that you're doing um, with your group, um, were they southern rights? Were they humpbacks? Well, at least one of them was a humpback. Uh, I've had a look at the Channel 7 uh, footage and one had that little dorsal fin, which is a giveaway sign, and also very long flippers uh, that have got a white underside as well. It's, uh, that's definitely a uh, humpback. So, Neil, we get two types of whales uh, that come into the bay, uh, the southern right and the humpback. Where do, where do they go after they come in and check out Melbourne? Well, it's interesting. They seem to be travelling in the same direction around about the same time of year. And uh, I know that the humpbacks are going up uh, to or around the Great Barrier Reef area to, to birth, to give birth up there. Okay. And they yeah. also do a bit of mating up there too. They go a bit crazy when they go to birth. Got to make hay while the sun shines. <laughs> That's, That's a lovely image. Yeah, so uh, I'm not sure if they do it at the same time as giving birth. I hope not. But anyway, apparently the um, pregnancy lasts about 11 months, so when they go down into the the Southern Ocean, which is very productive in the summer period down there, so they build up and get ready for the trek back up up north again. That's interesting. And the Southern Rights, they head down to Warrnambool Way and beyond, don't they? Yeah, well, there, there were a couple in, in Port Phillip Bay uh, last year. So they, they they definitely do head up along the east coast too. I'm not sure. I know the humpbacks have got uh, one group that 
of them that goes up the west coast of Australia and another up the okay, east coast. Yep. So there, there's about five different uh, groupings of them, apparently. Yeah. So mm. now's the time, too, if you want to look at whales down at Warrnambool, at Logan's Beach. Well, a little bit yeah. later, I think. Bit, is it a bit later? We need a few more weeks well, for them to get yeah. there? or I guess there would be a peak week, but yep. uh, they, they do tend to have a few stragglers, so it's sort of not like they're in a herd, uh, you know. So often they might be just one or two out on their own sort of thing. So over, over a period of time, I don't know why they uh, don't go as a group, but you know, I guess there might be a bit, have some Ooh, differences of opinion about which way they should go. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> and are these whales that are coming into the bay, do we know how long they're staying? Uh, well, generally, you know, that, from what I've um, observed, that's only a couple of days, so they don't stick around, but they they still seem to be on their way travelling somewhere. Why they come into the bay is, is another question. It's not clear that they're actually feeding. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I guess they're just enjoying the trip. Well, the bay is a beautiful place, as you indeed yeah. know. Interesting, though, that this, uh, this um, pair, though, that were on Friday seemed to be virtually in the Yarra, right at the Yarra Mouths, you know, which is quite interesting that they'd get that far up. That's right, yeah, those pictures I saw with the city buildings in the background, it was like, wow, this is Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. It's great to see. And all the more reason why we need to care about the bay and stop letting plastics uh, get into it from uh, the catchments around it. So that's sort of what we're on about. So tell yeah, walk us through that. I mean, you mentioned this last time you were on, I think, but you're start trying to, um, to get data. And indeed, we're going to be talking to Denise Hardesty from yeah. CSI Rose soon. I hope you can stay, through, um, stay around for that conversation. She's trying to get a survey going of the, well, the world's CSIRO is part of the world's largest marine pollution survey which is getting underway soon but you're trying to gather data on this much more locally in Port Phillip Bay. Yeah that's right I guess uh, Port Phillip Bay is kind of a little bit unique in the sense that it is relatively enclosed embayment and around about three quarters of the Victorian population live in catchments around the bay and so apart from uh, there's, there's always a focus on marine plastics as people call it but the point is it wasn't marine once upon a time it actually come from the street somewhere not far you know, and then down through the rivers and creeks in, into the bay, you know. So uh, what I'm trying to do is is get a focus on also doing some data collection on streets in the catchments where it comes from in the first place. And so who is, who's gathering that data for you? Uh, well, at this stage... Well, those uh, data, I should say. Uh, there's, there are a few volunteer groups, but it's, it's still a relatively new program in terms of the catchment data collection. So... Uh, that's something that I'm looking to recruit volunteers. I'm hoping the scouting movement might uh, come on board in a big way. So uh, uh, they have uh, motives to go and get badges and things like that. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, in fact, um, I've had a, a Brighton Sea Scout by the name of Sam Perkins who was going for a Queen's badge uh, recently. And he just won the Bayside Council Youth Leadership Award for um, adopting and implementing my beach survey method in at Holloway Bend. Uh, so that's great, you know, to see uh, young people like that uh, getting involved and, and getting quite passionate about it too. It's a perfect audience really because the plastic that you're just talking about in the street actually came out of our hands. That's right. Somebody uh, put it there. They did. <laughs> and uh, it'd be great to see for young people to realise, uh, to, you know, get that next generation to realise that that's an impact from us. And it doesn't matter if you're... You don't have to be in St Kilda, do you? The catchments go 
go yeah. right up um, quite high. Like. Many people are unaware of the link between the streets and the bay, you know. So in Doncaster, for example, if you're up yep. there, you're removed, you don't even think about the bay. And so they just don't know, they lack awareness of that connection. Yep. And, and really, uh, I think, you know, as a group campaigning to prevent plastic pollution, we need to come up with methods that actually uh, can... that ordinary people can get motivated about rather than just the early adopters who are passionate about the environment. We've got to find ways of communicating with that much broader group. Uh, and so coming up with uh, something exactly where they live is, is one way to do that. And, Neil, what's the most common type of plastics that you find? Well, one of the big ones that I'm really concerned about is polystyrene. Uh, it's it's uh, something that has hardly been recognised in many audits uh, by other groups, largely because it's generally quite small and uh, the audit methods um, don't really focus on the little things so much. Yeah. And yep. uh, that's something that... Uh, We've been doing mantanet trawls with the Arab Riverkeeper in the in the Yarra and the Maribyrnong since uh, 2014 now, and the one uh, item that is statistically relevant is uh, uh, in terms of the the difference between the rivers is that the greater amount of polystyrene coming out of the Yarra than the Maribyrnong. So this is from broken up eskies, um, broken bean bags, for example. Yeah, there's beads, and but also you know. Uh, polystyrene food trays and coffee cups and mm-hmm. bits and pieces like that but uh, and fruit boxes so you know why it's coming out more out of the Yarra possibly Victoria market might have who knows I'm not saying <laughs> did I say that but, well, but we don't know this is what we but we do need to track uh, and be specific about where stuff's coming from and, and develop our methods so that that can give us uh, greater clues it does float very well, doesn't it? That's probably why. Highly mobile. Yeah, that's highly right. mobile. Mm. And it's and it's very robust. It doesn't. Well, it breaks down to smaller pieces, but it doesn't biodegrade by any means. That's does right. It? Yeah. So uh, if it, there's a lot of that floating around, well, then the, the whales uh, and the, the sort of filter feeding organisms are, are going to cop it. Yeah. Um, one thing that was we talked about quite some time ago was nurdles, which are those um, little small plastic pallets uh, that they use pre-production. They they uh, melt those down to make plastic products. Yeah. Have you do you see many of those today? Uh, well, uh, there was a great event about a, uh, two weeks ago now where uh, uh, Josie Jones, who's down in Rye, is a one-ton mermaid. Who's I reckon she's probably a two-tonner now because she would have collected that amount of trash in it in her daily uh, excursions, uh, sent me a text and says, I found a noodle on Dry Beach. And then a quarter of an hour later, I found another ten. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then that, that developed to uh, 2,446 over, over the course of the day. She recruited a whole lot of other people locally to collect them all. So that was really after just one rainfall event uh, a couple of days earlier. So... Uh, the question was, where did they come from? Yeah, uh, it's really I guess it's impossible. hard to track. Yeah, so uh, uh, we have let the EPA know about it, but um, uh, that's something, though, that we really need to do more about because nurdles like polystyrene are incredibly mobile too and, yep. uh, you know, float high in the water column, so they're very subject to wave action and, and wind. So uh, yeah, that, that's... Uh, a big issue that uh, hopefully we can get on top of. I'm sort of confident that industry know what's good for them. 
Yep. <laughs> they, they, so, uh, they so reckon that they be... want to be the, the good corporate citizens, you know, so uh, let's hold them to that account there. Yeah, so that would be an industrial source. Uh, definitely yep. an industrial source. Yep. So that's sort of where the data collection is important, though. So uh, at the moment, Tungarail Blue have got a... Um, a project that's a little hotspots state government funded one to work with industry uh, around Port Phillip Bay to uh, uh, prevent nurdle escapes. And uh, so uh, that's great that they're having good friendly conversations with industry and quite a number of them are signing up to adopting you know, these simple methods to, to stop that from happening. So our job out there also in, is to just to confirm whether or not there's has been a reduction, whether, whether these methods are working or not, so we can go back uh, in 12 months' time and pat them on the back and say, good on you, fellas, that's terrific. Or, or uh, we can say, hmm, seems to be still a problem here. That in itself is going to be an enormous job, just, to, just detecting whether there has been a reduction or whether there's been an increase. I mean, you're collecting so many bits of rubbish around the bay. And yeah. h- how are you logging all of this and comparing it to, say, what it was 12 months ago? Well, uh, that's something that really needs to be properly established. And so what we're doing is uh, establishing reference points where we're only uh, monitoring nine one-square-metre quadrants on any given beach, and we'll keep going back to those same nine one-square-metre quadrants on a monthly basis, basis, hopefully. And by doing that and focusing on those small areas, you can actually pick up the microplastics or record the microplastics, which otherwise might have been just overlooked in a, in a whole beach clean-up, for example, where you've got people, oh, there's a big bottle over there, I'll go and grab that. Uh, so just by creating those really focused looking, we, we're hoping to establish a much more scientifically rigorous approach and to be able to say, well, look, this, this is uh, clear data here to show that there has been a, an increase or it has been a reduction. Yeah. Are you getting help with this? Are you getting help from people at any of the, the universities around town who are, are good at collecting data such as this? Um, well, it's kind of early days. I suppose there's been a few people who have, uh, such as friends of William Sound Wetlands, who have done some good work, and, and Sam, who I mentioned before from yep. the Scouts, but it's still a little bit sporadic, and so I'm hoping to recruit. In fact, I'm going down to Rye on... Uh, uh, next Saturday at two o'clock to, at Rye Pier to meet some locals down there to train them up on the on the survey method. So hopefully we'll have an active team down there. So and if there's anyone out there listening who wants to get involved right now, how can they contact you? Well, the best way is probably by email, which is baykeeper, b a y k w e p e r at ecocenter dot com. Okay, Neil Blake, thank you very much for coming in and joining us. And you're going to stay around with us while we talk to Denise Hardesty from CSIRO. Yeah, we'd love to hear what Denise has got to say. <laughs> Before I let you go, um, is there anything else that you want to share with us that your group's doing at the moment? Uh, well, we've been doing still uh, pursuing the... Uh the uh, little um, elongated wedge shells and uh, tracking their presence in the bay. That's a fascinating species, really, that still needs to be a bit more work to understand how they uh, um, operate on a seasonal basis, particularly in my interest is that I suspect a connection in the food chain to supporting the St Kilda penguins, for example. So what are these shells again? Uh, They're called elongated wedge shells or Paffy's elongata. Yeah. And they're quite a small pippy, so they only get, you know, about uh, 25 millimetres long and uh, maybe 15 uh, across. And uh, they, they're just finding them in, in near shore 
uh, shovel samples. They live in the sandy sediments, uh, virtually right along the eastern side of the bay, but in big numbers too, particularly around Middle Park. So uh, uh, interesting to find out a bit more about uh, how they influence the, the wider food chain. Cool. Neil, thank you very much for um, for coming in and as I said you're going to stay around with us and we're going to go to some music now and then we'll be back with Dr Denise Hardesty from CSIRO in Hobart One day Do you like fish or maybe marine invertebrates? Listen to Radio Marinara for all things wet and salty. Sundays at 9am on 102.7 3 Triple R. Ah, Tony Barber. Good morning if you're listening. Welcome back to Radio Marinara on 3 Triple R. It's 934 I've got a fantastic story about uh, a new way to collect uh, samples from whales. In fact, Neil, carrying on from our conversation this morning, this is a project by Ocean Alliance uh, and they've worked out how to overcome the the tricky uh, problem of collecting snot samples from whales. Really? uh, Yeah. Uh, they've got drones. They've um, they've got drones, and they've been trialling uh, a program with the drones to attach petri dishes and sponges to drones, mm-hmm. and they uh, fly them out over the whales, which is a, a a method that's almost unintrusive for a whale. So you're not having to yeah. drive a boat up quick and um, get up its nose. That's right. Mm. Yep. Uh, so. These this has turned out to be quite successful, and uh, when they collect the the exhaled exhaled breath condensate, they call it scientifically, yep. they're able to collect DNA, stress hormones, pregnancy hormones, ketones, and microbiomes. Wow! Yeah, all that's of that. all of that. Um, so it's been it's a, it's a terrific project project that they've got going. Um, and it's totally non-lethal, which um, I think is a really fantastic program yeah. to be running. So what will they do with that data? Though? Well, the DNA reveals to them, obviously, the sex of the animal um, and the animal's um, biological footprint. The bi- microbiomes, uh, which help for fight disease and digest food, uh, give them a better understanding of um, what's happening inside the animal. Mm. Pregnancy hormones can tell them whether the, okay. what stage of the pregnancy that the whale is up to. Stress hormones, of course, which, um, which can be stimulated by uh, environmental factors but also of, of being followed to, so that they can get a sample. And ketones, which uh, gives them a, a look into their metabolism. So it's quite an interesting program. I thought uh, really worth talking about because it was quite quite ingenious. And they've run three programs so far to Patagonia, the Sea of Cortez and Alaska where they've been uh, working on their sample collection methods. 
and have also extended it to have another bot called an earbot. Uh, which doesn't doesn't go into the ear of the whale, but is it's a, a waterproof drone with a hydrophone on it, and it lands in the water mm-hmm. and listens to the sounds that they're producing. Wow, fantastic! Yeah, oh, a really awesome project, and that's run by Ocean Alliance, which is uh, an American um, organisation, and. I'll put a link to our website because they do have some amazing... They've got cameras on the drones as well and they've got amazing uh, footage of the whales, one of them of a small... of a calf, obviously small in our sense but very large, probably the size of a car, um, nuzzling its mother, um, Mm. totally unaware that they're being watched. It's really quite beautiful and um, just delicate, just really lovely to watch. Ah, Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Angeline, thank you very much for that. In case um, some of you might have wondered, what happened to Denise Hardesty? Well, we did have a couple of problems getting her on the phone, but I'm pretty sure we have Dr Denise Hardesty on the phone now from CSIRO in Hobart. Denise, are you there? I am here. Good morning. (laughs) It's Dr Beach here, and I'm joined in the studio by Angeline and also Neil Blake, who I believe you might have met. Hi, Denise. Our baykeeper. Indeed. (laughs) Hello. Good morning, everybody. Good morning to you. How is it in Hobart? Chilly? Uh, it is a spectacular, sunny, beautiful Sunday morning with great surf and sunny blue skies. Life is good. That sounds really good. Now, you're Principal Oceans and Atmosphere Research Scientist with um, with CSIRO in Hobart. Is it with CSIRO or is it with the Antarctic Division as well? I'm with CSIRO's Oceans and Atmosphere, yes. Okay, cool. And you guys, are, you're part of the world's largest marine pollution survey. Is that right? This is um, something which has just been undertaken and you're heading it up, I gather. I am heading it up with a whole group or a whole team of researchers from CSIRO as well as with collaborators from several different countries around the world. Now, it's different than the International Coastal Cleanup, which is this huge ongoing exercise where people go up and clean up beaches one day a year around the world. But this is the first and the largest sort of global, scientifically collected data gathering exercise at, you know, in multiple countries from around the world, really aiming to say, okay, how much trash is out there? How much is really entering our oceans? What's the damage that it does? And frankly, how do we resolve this issue on ground before it gets out there into our waters where it certainly doesn't belong? We've just been talking about this on a very local scale with, with Neil, um, thinking about Port Phillip Bay and getting information from the catchments, all the, the water that's going into Port Phillip Bay. Um, and it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to understand how you can possibly get a handle on these, these numbers for, for the entire planet. <laughs> well, it's a very audacious and bold project, I can assure you. And it's really fundamentally important that we're working with these critical on-ground partners who know so much in their respective areas. It's not that we're going to go in and supersede all the great work that people are doing. It's that we're partnering with other groups in these different countries, in these different areas, and asking some of those questions together. You know, we bring some of that scientific expertise and analytical experience but it's the people on the ground, you know, like Neil and groups like that, who have a, just a, a huge depth and vast array of information. But what we're doing is not just going out and surveying the beaches and the coastline. We're going up the rivers. We're looking up the watersheds. We're looking inland and carrying out surveys that can be repeated, that are repeatable, that we can then analyze to say, okay, how big is this issue? Where is it coming from? You know, industry wants to know, people want to know, governments need to know. I think there's a lot of interest in this kind of work. 
Uh, Denise, it's Angeline. Can I ask you, does your program link in with others that are uh, going on around the world looking at um, uh, rubbish in the in the gyres? So our focus is way before it actually gets out there into the gyres, into those accumulating zones, because most of the litter that ends up out there, it's much older, it's broken down, it gets out there. But most of the litter that actually enters our oceans ends up in what I call the coast-ocean coast zone. So things wash out from land, they go out rivers, they're dropped on beaches, and they... And they may move up and down the coastline, north or south or east or west, depending upon what the coastal zone, you know, what area or, you know, or direction your beach is facing. But it actually takes quite a lot for that litter, that debris to get out there past those few kilometers of the coastal zone out there into the open ocean, you know, out beyond the you know, the 50-kilometer mark or that sorts of things. So we're very aware of some of those groups that are out there trying to clean up the oceans and some of those folks have actually, we've worked with them in the past and everything, but we're not directly out there trying to clean it up the middle of the garbage patch and doing those sorts of things. We're really trying to inform and collect the information on land, which is where most of it is generated. Most of it starts before it ends up out there in those gyres. Denise, do you have a sense of how the percentage of rubbish that uh, stays in the coastal zone and, and what goes out to ocean? Excuse me. Well, from our estimates, it's over 90% of the stuff that's ending up on the beaches and that sort of thing that actually remains in that coastal zone, which is why, if you talk to Neil and others who are doing beach cleanups, if you go to the same beaches that are areas that trash or litter keeps washing up on, we call those accumulating zones or, you know, accumulating beaches, and that's why those beaches keep getting stuff over and over and over again because it's moved along that coastal zone washing back up on those beaches because of the currents, because of the winds, because of the tides, because of the shapes of those beaches. Those tend to be those, you know, kind of coves or pocket kind of beaches where you find things that keep washing up there month after month, year after year, and often, you know, it's quite seasonal as well. So if you like, these are hot spots for, um, for the accumulation of, of rubbish, of our dross. They are. Exactly. And those are the areas that we all see and that we all think about. But what we're not doing is linking that back to, okay, where's that stuff really originating? Because if we're only focusing on the hot spots of accumulation, then we're really missing the point of where we need to target our efforts to stop it getting out there in the first place. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And you presented recently at the... Um what, the first G20 summit on ocean pollution, did you not? I did. That was a few months ago in Germany, and it was really fantastic. So I was part of a G7 scientific group that talked to the, you know, the top 20 or the top seven global economies. And then they had a follow-up meeting with the top 20 global economies to really start addressing this issue and to say, okay, what are we as leaders around the world? What are the decisions that we need to be making? And, you know, to me, it's really heartening to see that plastic pollution, that marine debris is on the table, that it's being discussed at such an important and critical level by the leading 20 countries from around the world. And this does fit in with the... Yeah. This does fit in with the UN Sustainable Development Goals as well, does it not? It does. It was actually one of the very few key target or focal conversation points at the recent Sustainable Development Goals meeting at the United Nations in New York. And I wasn't able to attend, but my colleague Chris Wilcox was there 
and the minister from Australia made a mention of this project. There are a lot of discussions happening, and it's really important and great to know that you know, all these countries from around the world are really considering what is it that we manufacture, how is it that we use the plastic in our lives, and as we start to really focus on sustainable development, not just development, but how do we operate in such a huge global environment in a sustainable fashion. And it's fundamentally important and really exciting to know that the plastic pollution global issue is, is on that table. It's being considered. And it is something that we've all got so used to, having plastic and just plastic bottles, all sorts of objects, and they, and we, we don't know where they go in the end. We're not paying enough attention to where they go. You know, we're not trying to suggest that we're going to get plastic out of our lives. It's an amazing suite of materials, obviously. There's lots of different things, that, lots of different polymer types, you know, not to get too technical, yeah. that plastic's made of. And it's a really important component of life. You know, there's incredible medical uses. We talk in it. We drive in it. We, you know, we write on it. We, you know, we use it for so many important uses every day. But we can use it much smartly, more smartly, and, you know, more thoughtfully and mindfully, I suppose, is really the thing to say. And being from a country like Australia, we have really low waste mismanagement, but we actually have incredibly high waste generation per person. And that's because we're in this developed country where we have all these privileges, where we have all these opportunities, and we have all this stuff, frankly. Yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> How are you going to... Um, so there are many different... Can you just take us through the different countries that are participating in this survey again? And I'm kind of wondering about the, the coordination of that and the challenges that you're facing. So right now, while I'm in Hobart, two of my colleagues are in South Korea and we're running the first training workshop there right now with partners from five different countries. So we're working with colleagues who've been on the ground doing beach cleanups, collecting information in South Korea, in Bangladesh in Vietnam, you know, in, in Taiwan and in China. And those are some of the countries that we really need and want to be working with because those are some of the countries that have been noted as having some of the more significant waste mismanagement that makes its way out there into the ocean. So we're going out, we're training our colleagues from these other countries, then we'll be going out and carrying out some field work in conjunction with them in the coming 6, 12, 18 months to collect data with them. We're helping them with the design. We're working together side by side. We're teaching them the methodologies. We'll be translating some of the data sheets and stuff into different languages as they reach out to their partner organizations and to their on-ground participants in their various countries. So it's, it's a very exciting project that, yes, indeed, it does We require an immense amount of coordination. You know, later this year, we'll be going to South Africa and doing some sampling and surveying there as well. So we've done a little bit of work in the United States. We've obviously, um, you're, you may be familiar with the fact that we carried out a national survey all the way around Australia a few years ago. So we'll be, you know, gathering some more information in Australia, in the U.S., in South Africa, in all these other countries as more and more partners start to come on board and express interest. We're, we'll also be working in Indonesia. We have colleagues in Pakistan, in India, in numerous other countries that have been identified as some of those in that kind of top 20 for waste mismanagement in a recent paper that was published a couple of years ago. 
Denise, we wish you all the very best with this, and it just sounds like an enormous task, but I'm really pleased that, that you are doing it, that we all are. <laughs> Good on you, Denise. We're very excited about it. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you this morning. And we'd love to get you back on in a couple of months' time to see how the survey's going, if that's possible. So I'll, I'll probably be in contact soon. Absolutely. I'd love to talk to you again. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thanks, Denise. That was Dr. Denise Hardesty, who is uh, Principal Oceans and Atmosphere Research Scientist with CSIRO in Hobart, talking about the, the world's largest marine pollution survey. We're going to be back in a little while, and we're Angelina and I are going to um, talk you through a couple of papers and fish lips and some other things. But before we go to that, let's have some music. G'day, John Clark here. When I want to learn about all things wet and salty, which is a pretty much constant desire on my part, I tune into Radio Marinara Sunday mornings at 9am on 102.7 3RRR. It is very nice to have you with us. Do you think he's still tuned in? Still he's, listening? He's still, yeah, he's still tuned in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before that, we were listening to Leanne Womack. That was uh, from an album called The Kayamo Sessions at Sea, Buddy Miller and Friends, singing After the Fire is Gone. You know, Dr. Beach, before I forgot to back announce oh, the you earlier girl. track. You're a bad person. I am a bad person, uh, which was a place called Home from PJ Harvey's Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. And in January, that was the song I really wanted her to play, but she didn't, didn't play anything from this album. You was ripped off. I was, indeed. <laughs> but anyway, I'm over it now. You're on Radio Marinara, as John Clark informed us, and we've got about seven minutes left before we're going to get out of here for the doctors. But in that time, I want to talk about fish lips because we haven't done that enough on this program. <laughs> and there's a paper which has just appeared in the... Um, well, edition of Current Biology a couple of weeks ago. This is from people in Townsville um, at James Cork University, David Bellwood and Victor Huertas. And the paper is entitled Mucus Secreting Lips Offer Protection to Suction Feeding Coralivorous Fishes. So coral. Lots of fish up on the barrier reef. Um, but coral's a pretty spiky hard thing to eat, is it not, Angeline? Imagine trying to eat coral. You've got all those... You've got nematocysts, you've got these stinging cells, you've got this hard fibrous coralline stuff it's just gonna it's terrible it's probably saving grace is it these that it's in a wet environment i suppose <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of fish do eat coral but there's one group which has just been it's called the tube lip wrasses which these people have been looking at and they eat the coral by kind of kissing it by smacking it so what they do is that they're eating Actually, not the coral polyps. So we, corals made up of, you know, a skeleton and we've got the little individual animals, the coral polyps with their tentacles. But a large part of coral is actually mucus. There's mucus on the outside which is secreted by, and this is all sorts of corals, staghorns, anything else that you can think yeah. of, um, have a lot of this mucus. And that mucus is there to both protect the, cor the coral from, from fouling, so from other things landing on it. Um, and what, it, what that mucus does is, it's, well, it's, the corals spend an enormous amount of energy making this mucus and the mucus 
forms this layer on the outside of the corals. And what these tube lift wrasses are doing is they're not eating the polyps themselves, so they're not going in and they're not scratching with teeth, so other wrasses have teeth, which... Like the parrot wrasses. Yeah, like the, the parrotfish and all te- those yeah, things. Yeah. Yeah. But what these guys are doing is they're eating the mucus, so they're sucking the mucus, they're just giving it a little kiss and then forming this seal with their lips. It's a bit like us putting lips around a straw and sucking... Yep. Eating mucus. Eating yep. mucus, but they're getting lots and lots of goodies from eating this Sorry, slimy... Sorry, eating your breakfast. ...from this slimy mucus. <laughs> <laughs> and the way they do this, they've got this... In this paper, which anyone can have a look at, actually, um, you can download it for free from Current Biology, and again, it's by Victor Huertas and David Bellwood, um, and it appeared in on in June the 5th. They have... Their lips have got, like, like baffles on them, um, little kind of ridges on the inside, and those ridges secrete this mucus. And when they go up to kiss it, there is apparently an audible smacking sound that you can hear. And when they do kiss it, it stops them... Well, it, they form this seal, as I said, like with the, with the tube, with a with straw, but they also suck in all this mucus and they get these goodies from that delicious, yummy mucus. And I was amazed to see the corals... About oh, half of all the energy which comes from corals. So in corals we have zooxanthellae, we have these unicellular algae, dinoflagellates that do photosynthesis. That's what gives corals their colour. Most of that photosynthate, so the energy which is produced by the photosynthesis from these organisms in the coral, well, about half of that is actually turned into mucus eventually by the coral. And that that mucus then gets into the water column is very important for nutrient cycling in the well in reef environments, but also we now know in feeding fish. So how does that impact on the corals if fish are sucking off their mucus, so to speak? <laughs> does that put them at uh, does that make them um, at risk of being unhealthy? Indeed, a very good question, yep. Angeline. Yes. So there are patches on the corals where the you know you can see fish overfeeding, and people are thinking now this as you suggested, might be a big problem for the corals. Well, it's not a huge problem, but it, in certain cases where you've got you know, yep. an overabundance of the fish that are doing this, so there's tube lip rash, that that could be indeed a problem for the, for the corals. But now that this has been identified, that this is a way in which they are feeding off the corals, then people are going to be paying much more attention to this, I would imagine. Isn't it fascinating the incredible um, things that are happening on coral reefs that you... Don't, aren't aware of it just uh, at a glance, That's the interactions right. that are happening there. Yeah. Um, you had a piece that you wanted to I did. quickly Look, mention? In, in contrast to my Snotbot story um, where Ocean Alliance have worked out how to uh, collect a lot of valuable information from whales using a drone, uh, on Friday the Japanese parliament considered a bill um, to back commercial whaling. This bill, which was titled Bill on the Implementation of Cetacean Scientific Research for the Resumption of Commercial Whaling, uh, is uh, going to be considered by them just to give legal backing to their activities in a, in a domestic sort of sense. Right. Because, of course, their laws wouldn't apply to the open ocean, but... Uh, that they have this legal backing at home uh, because it's necessary for them to carry out, they they believe, it's necessary for them to carry out scientific whaling in a stable, continuous whale way. It's a Freudian slip there. That's right, stable, continuous uh, In whale. order to carry out commercial whaling. So it's quite... I find it quite difficult to read this media release and story because 
I can't see the relationship of what their scientific research does to pave the way for commercial whaling because then they go on saying this is not about counting whales. So I'm struggling to see the outcomes here of, and knows? the value of what they're doing. But uh, anyway, that is being considered as well in this world at the same time as uh, exciting non-lethal methods as well. Okay. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you also to Neil Blake, our baykeeper, for coming in. And thank you to Dr Denise Hardesty, who is on the phone from Hobart with CSIRO. I have been Dr Beach. The show has been Radio Marinara. And thank you to Kent for panelling. Next week, I'm not sure who's on the show. Well, actually, no, I am with Bron. You went with Bron? Excellent. And next week is Community Cup, so she'll be all oiled up and lathered (laughs) up and getting ready to go out there and fight the good fight. She's not playing. I think she's like the team coach, team mum type. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.